Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 48. When people ask Rob Hill why he does the kind of work that he does, he explains by telling them a story about his mother. In 2012, I was going to leave Mississippi, and it was right before the election, the, the presidential election. And I was talking on the phone to my mom, and she said, you're not going to vote for Obama, are you? And I said, yes, I'm, of course I'm going to vote for Obama. And she said, and I said, why wouldn't you vote for Obama? She said, well, he's for gay rights. And we had never openly talked about the fact that I'm gay. Um, she knew it, you know, but, but it was one of those things, I guess she thought that maybe I was suppressing it, I was denying it, you know, because of my faith or whatever. But I, I got on the phone and called my partner and I said, let's get the hell out of here. So that's what Rob did. His partner, Ryan, got a job in Manhattan. They found an apartment. They got ready to move there. They started packing up. They were going to leave their home state, leave the bigotry and the prejudice, the intolerance behind. But when I was on on the phone with my mom, talking to her about that, and she didn't like that I was leaving. And and she said, don't go to New York. And I said, why? And I said, said, because they all go there. (laughs) And so what she was afraid of is that people were going to assume that I'm gay, which I am. Rob's mother was in that place that a lot of Southern mothers are when they sort of kind of know that their son is gay or their daughter is a lesbian or anything in the LGBTQ spectrum. And they are concerned not so much with the fact of it because they love their child. They're just concerned what everyone else might think. And in this situation, the first thing that popped in his mom's mind was what will people think if my son goes to New York? (laughs) They might think that he is, well, what he actually is. So fast forward, we ended up staying in Mississippi. We were about to sign the lease on an apartment and we realized this is not right. We have family here, we have friends, we have lots of connections. Why leave Mississippi when we can stay and help make it a better place? Fortunately, Ryan, my partner, had not given up his job, so he you know, we, we came back and, and, and so my mom was, relieved, was relieved by that and she said, well, um, okay, well that's fine. I, they, I'm so happy you're staying. Just make sure he has an enclosed garage. <laughs> so the people wouldn't see my car and yeah. it just had his house. And um, so anyway, so now then fast forward a, a, a year. I, I decided to Rob's mother had come to terms with the fact that her son was gay and that he and his partner were about to get a house together, but she still wanted Rob to keep it a secret but she could avoid the Southern mother's worst nightmare. Rumors and gossip spread in the community and the church. But Rob was making it really tough on his mom because he stayed in Mississippi, sure. And he was living with a man, sure. 
but he also became head of the Human Rights Campaign, an organization devoted to helping Mississippians change their minds about the LGBTQ community. And so I'm talking to my mom and telling her about this job almost a little over a year after it was, in fact, it was Easter Sunday of, of 2014. And my mom knows that I'm telling her I'm going to be working for a gay rights organization in Mississippi. And she said, can't you go to New York and do that? <laughs> so, so, you know, this whole thing, of like, let's keep it under wraps. And I would say my mom is really coming around. Rob likes to tell this story, not only because it gives people he meets around the country some insight into why he decided to stay in Mississippi, but it also was his inspiration for how he would go about changing Southern minds about the LGBTQ community in the state. Minds thinking about their neighbors and coworkers and their children. To do that, he told me, the first step would be to strike at the fear shared by mothers like his around the state. So he put together a film crew and contacted the mother of a friend and he asked her, would she be willing to tell her story to everyone on television in a commercial he planned to run for months? And it took some persuading, but he eventually convinced her to help him make this. I am a Bible-believing, born-again Christian. I was blessed to have three uh, sons, love them to death. My middle son was about to graduate from college, and he said, Mama, I'm gay. Nothing in my life had ever prepared me for that. I said, what's going to happen? This is going to tear our family apart. Your daddy will die. It's hard to talk to somebody and tell them something that you know is going to break their heart. And it was the first time in my life that I'd ever seen him cry. And he said, well, they're my boys, and I love them. One of the main things that I want to happen is to open the arms of Jesus Christ to people that have been pressed out of of the church. We've closed our doors to people that need us the most. God called us to love each other. So how did this ad go over? Actually, really, really well. In fact, Rob Hill is changing people's minds, something that in Mississippi seemed impossible. He told me that commercials like these, and they've made several, help people who are deeply religious, evangelicals, wrestle with the idea of also being accepting of the local LGBT community. And the reason This campaign, which is called All God's Children, is focusing on religion, he said, is because he doesn't see religion as a source of hate, but instead as a source of ignorance, one of many. And these sources of ignorance keep people from coming into contact with other people, from hearing their stories and seeing them as real human beings. My name is David McCraney, and this is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. And on each episode, we explore a new topic in the realm of of self-delusion and the science behind reasoning, decision-making, and judgments. On this episode, we are going to explore contact and its power to change minds concerning issues over which we once thought people were impossible to sway. Up next, we learn the science behind the contact hypothesis. And then we head to Los Angeles, where a man visited the homes of 12,000 strangers in an effort to develop the perfect conversation or changing minds.
The Supreme Court of the United States may soon make a historic decision on the legality of same-sex marriage, an issue that, until now, has been decided among individual states. And at first, most of the country was opposed to the idea. Many states chose to ban same-sex marriage, and some even went so far as to amend their constitutions to ensure that if it ever did become legal, it wouldn't be legal within their borders. But somehow, over the last decade or so, minds changed. So far, 37 states have now legalized same-sex marriage. And if you ask most people, had the Supreme Court not taken up the issue, which state would be the last out of the remaining 13 to make same-sex unions legal? Well, the answer would probably have been... Well, it's obvious, isn't it? In fact, here, here's John Oliver from HBO's Last Week Tonight saying as much. That's right. We are nearly halfway to full nationwide marriage equality, which means, which means, which means it's about to become a question of which state is going to be last. <laughs> Who could it possibly be, Mississippi? We don't know. We don't know, Mississippi. It could be anyone, Mississippi. Now, I, I know it's a little premature, but I do think... In December of 2013, the New York Times published an article and. In that article, they said that Mississippi was indeed the least tolerant state in all of the United States when it came to issues of LGBT equality and same-sex marriage. And they did all sorts of polling for this. Nate Silver got involved. They even found out in this article that for every openly gay male high school student on Facebook in Mississippi, there are 5.5 in Rhode Island. And in the home, they wrote that in Mississippi, there are 50% more Google searches asking, is my husband gay, than there are in Rhode Island. And CNN did research along these lines, and they found something similar. This is columnist John D. Sutter. Yeah, I'm John Sutter. I'm a columnist um, for the opinion section of CNN.com. Around the same time that the New York Times published that article, John was working on a series of columns about the LGBT movement in the United States. And that's when he had this this idea. I was sort of wondering, you know, what which state had the worst laws for LGBT people? And I mean, I think if you ask people who are in the community, especially what state that they would guess, like a lot of them would, you know, just guess Mississippi off the top of their heads. But we actually did sort of an analysis of state laws um, and had, you know, kind of an index to, to rank them against each other and, you know, determined that in in this view, at least, you know, and at the time that I that I went, that Mississippi had sort of the least helpful laws and the most discriminatory laws um, for LGBT people. So I, I in his research, John learned that according to the most recent census data, there were several counties in Mississippi that had reported no gay people at all. So John traveled to Franklin County in Mississippi to see if that was true. Was there really a place in this state where no one was gay? And I, ca I called it the county where no one's gay, which is a little tongue in cheek <laughs> because, um, you know, I figured going into it that there definitely would be gay people living there, but they just weren't showing up in this statistical way. You know, it could be that there were single gay people who just didn't identify on the census in the way that the census was asking the question. But in any event, it was it was sort of an interesting idea to me that there might be this place where, um, you know, it could be reasonably expected that there there wouldn't be any. LGBT people like it took, you know, it took a day or so, but it was I pretty quickly found out that 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 definitely wasn't the case. John and his videographer, they drove around and they stopped in front of gas stations and grocery stores and they asked people about their community. And then slowly, eventually, they asked, do you know if there are any gay people in Franklin County? 
And, you know, I got a lot of really like kind of confused looks <laughs> when I <laughs> asked that question. It's a pretty taboo, I would say, or not necessarily that it's like taboo in a way, but I think people were just very surprised to be asked about that question uh, about this issue, especially by a stranger. And at first I was getting a lot of people who were telling me, um, yeah, that's right. Like there aren't, you know, there aren't any gay people here. I remember I met one woman who was, um, uh, and I think she was sitting out on the porch when I, when I walked up there, uh, who was older and told me that, yeah, she'd never met a gay person in real life that she watched the Ellen show and she thought Ellen was entertaining. And, um, but that was like her only exposure to, uh, a gay person. You know, I, I got a lot of kind of variations on that. Eventually, John visited a hair salon and the people inside said they knew some couples and they agreed to take him to meet those couples. And John ended up meeting many different LGBT people, individuals and in relationships. And the more time he spent in Franklin County asking people, are there really no gay people here? The more he started to hear variations of this answer. Yeah, obviously that's not true, but people here don't really talk about that. You shouldn't really be asking people that question. I recommend you check out John's story. It's really good. It's called The County Where No One Is Gay. There's a video version of it. There's a text version of it, both at CNN.com. And in that story, I first learned the term the Southern Closet. And I've later seen that it comes up a lot in discussions about the gay community in Mississippi. In his reporting, John found out that this is probably the most frustrating thing that activists in the state must deal with. Yeah, that, that term, um, I, I never heard that until I was there. And uh, um, an activist, I think in Jackson, um, was the one who mentioned that to me. And he described it sort of as, you know, the door to the closet may be wide open, but there's a person like sitting inside the way he described it, like sitting there in high heels, like thinking of, you know, like a gay man sitting in, in high heels and like just sort of hiding there, but with the door open. So people are aware that there's something different about this person perhaps, um, and often know that they're gay, but like people just sort of walk by and aren't acknowledging it. And I I think that like the amount of like just stress that puts on a person who's in that situation is kind of hard to underestimate. I mean, I encountered people who, you know, had experienced really overt discrimination. There also was a lot of just sort of this underlying tension and them feeling like, you know, they couldn't really be themselves. Um, and I think that that really wears on a person after a time. Like I met the, uh, you know, a, a couple who were planning when I was there, they were planning to get married in, in Florida, even though it wasn't legal. Um, and we're talking about like sort of planning this commitment ceremony and, um, you know, one of their mothers was going to come and I, and they were like, and she's so excited about it. It's going to be great. And I talked to the mom and, the thing that she said that stuck with me was that she was going to go, but that she really didn't approve of it. And it was really painful for her. And when they kissed in the ceremony that she planned to like literally turn away and not look because it would be too hard for her to see. So there's a lot of like kind of acknowledging it, but there's a, a whole lot of awkwardness and like sort of silence that surrounds it almost. So how does that silence affect people and how does it affect change and what are people doing about it? You'll learn all that after this break.
You Are Not So Smart is supported by Wealthfront, the automated investment service that makes it easy to invest your money the right way. Wealthfront software manages your money using investment strategies that were previously only available to the wealthiest investors for just one quarter of the cost of using a traditional advisor. Wealthfront monitors your account 24-7, automatically rebalancing your portfolio, reinvesting dividends, and working to maximize your after-tax returns. Wealthfront is also overseen by a team of investment experts, the same experts who launched the Index Fund Revolution and who've written some of the most important books in finance. In case you're not convinced, you should know that Wealthfront manages more than $2 billion in client assets and has saved millions of dollars on taxes for its clients. So with Wealthfront watching over your investments every day, what will you do with all your extra time? Visit Wealthfront.com slash smart to get your first $10,000 managed for free. Okay, I have to say the next part really fast. Wealthfront Incorporated is an SEC registered investment advisor. Brokered services are offered through Wealthfront Brokered Corporation. Member FINRA and SIPC. This is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities. Investing in securities involves risk and there is a possibility of losing money. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please visit Wealthfront.com to read their full disclosure. And now we return to our program. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast, and we are exploring how minds change. And one way that minds don't change is through the influence of prejudice. Psychology has been studying prejudice for a long time, most intensely following World War II during the civil rights struggle in the United States. In that time, the great psychologist Gordon Allport wrote, and I have the book in front of me, and it's gigantic. It's one of these kind of books. I'm going to drop it. (laughs) Yeah, it's huge. And in this book, The Nature of Prejudice... Allport wrote, It required years of labor and billions of dollars to gain the secret of the atom. It will take a still greater investment to gain the secrets of man's irrational nature. In this book, Allport lays out a foundation for how you can change people's minds. And one of the things he says must happen is contact. And he laid out how that does and does not happen in his contact hypothesis. Today, Princeton professor Betsy Levy Pollack is one of the world's leading authorities on contact hypothesis. And so I asked her, what can we learn and put in practice from what Alport wrote and what psychologists have learned since? He, he wrote that um, contact um, between uh, members of two groups should, in fact, reduce prejudice. It was part of his solutions um, uh, chapter. Um, in particular, um, under uh, certain conditions. Um, and um, the conditions actually um, started out as a, as a small list and, and then grew following Allport. But, but the, the original list of conditions um, was... Um, Condition one, equal status. Contact between members of, of two groups should reduce prejudice between those groups if um, the two people meet uh, under conditions of equal status, so they're engaging um, on equal grounds. Condition two, shared goals. Um, also, the, the two people who are meeting should um, have a common goal. They should maybe work on a problem or a task together. Um, sometimes people call that a superordinate goal, a goal that goes above and beyond their, their group division. Condition three. Intergroup cooperation. They should be cooperative in that situation. Condition four, support of the authorities and local customs. They should have support of the authorities uh, or law or or customs. 
Condition five, informal interaction. And uh, there should be, you know, very personal interaction. So that, that, those were some of the conditions that um, Allport laid out. Um, but his general idea was just, um, if you really want to reduce contact, and one of the underlying assumptions is that a lot of ignorance drives prejudice, um, bring, bring people together to get to know one another, um, it should just be, a, in general, a positive encounter. In Allport's work, he wrote that acquaintance leads to tolerance. Because once you have that sort of contact, it leads to sounder beliefs. People's beliefs become more filled out, he wrote, more robust, and loaded with the knowledge that you gain after a real in-the-flesh acquaintance. Now, this might not change people's attitudes, but it does reduce prejudice. And he noted that in the 1950s, segregated communities, segregated housing, segregated schools, segregated churches, all of this limited the potential for that kind of acquaintance and friendship to just happen naturally. And a lot of the contact that did occur occurred at the borders of separate worlds. And so that contact was rife with conflict. And there was no equal status, of course, whenever people worked together. Usually African-Americans worked in subordinate roles or as unskilled workers, which can, among people who are already prejudiced, reinforce their feelings. So mere exposure can, in the absence of true contact, sometimes be harmful if there's no informal contact to go along with what's happening in the workplace. Pollock and some of the other scientists I interviewed said that exposure, like the kind you see on television today, is different because creators of television shows and movies are much more conscious of the image they're putting forth of the LGBT community. And so the exposure many people get through the media isn't as damaging as the kind of exposure people got in the workplace in the 1950s between whites and African-Americans. But it's still, in the case of the LGBT community, more or less neutral. Individuals might be more willing to come out to friends and family after seeing that the world of the media is supporting them. But without the next step of actually living out, the conditions of contact won't be met. And this is why the Southern closet is so harmful. People are already in contact with the LGBT individuals in their communities. They already have equal status and share common goals and cooperate to solve problems and enjoy informal relationships. But the straight people often don't know it. And so that last step becomes very difficult to reach. The approval of authorities whether in the church or the government. So what keeps this Southern closet alive? What perpetuates it? Why? Why is Mississippi like this? Why is it so resistant to change? Why is it destined to be the last holdout? Well, I asked a lot of Mississippians in the LGBT community what they thought, and most said they believed it was the influence of religion. And I can understand why. Mississippi is deeply religious. It's not uncommon for even small towns and their surrounding areas to be home to 200 or more churches. And it can seem like there's one on every street corner and dozens between each town along the highways. In fact, according to Gallup, 63% of Mississippians attend church once a week, and that's the most in the whole country. It's the most religious state, so there definitely is a correlation there. But is there causation? Well, Rob Hill told me it's more complicated than that. He thinks that it's, it's not religion itself. After all, he's a pastor, And most of the people I met in activist organizations were either pastors or former pastors, or if not, they were part of that 63% who went to church every week. To try and understand this better, I went to church a few times, 
And the sermons that I attended were anti-gay sermons because it wasn't hard to find one. And in fact, there was a conference happening while I was doing this story about same-sex marriage. The name of the conference was Coming Out, Clarifying Marriage in the Age of Sexual Confusion. I tried to slip in unnoticed and not be spotted and just take notes, and that didn't work. In fact, here's audio of me being yelled at. But it's often stated, not one time did Jesus ever say anything against homosexuality. Yes, he did. When Moses wrote the first words, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, Jesus was there communicating those words. Every Word of Scripture, ladies and gentlemen, is equally authoritative through the mouth of Jesus, through the mouth of the second person of the Trinity. Every single word. Amen. Did you get that down, Mr. Reporter? Mr. Reporter is me, and yes, that's the pastor yelling at me. That's Kevin Shearer. He is the head pastor of 38th Avenue Baptist Church in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And he's yelling at me, understandably, because I have infiltrated his church and I'm sitting in the back and I'm writing notes. And he knows it. I thought I was invisible, but he spotted me. And he probably spotted me from the beginning because a lot of what they talked about across all four days of this conference was this idea that the media and the government has been taken over by infiltrators people who are trying to push an agenda that they feel is not what most people in the country actually feel. They don't believe that the country has moved on this issue. They don't believe that a majority, which it is a slim majority still, is in favor of same-sex marriage. They think that that's all just LGBT propaganda. I actually ended up sitting down with Kevin and three other local pastors and asked them lots of questions. And I won't go into detail here because they all boil down to basically the same thing. The Bible is the final authority on this for them, and it is very clearly stated in their minds it is against all forms of LGBT everything. But there was this one question that I asked, and the answer that came back speaks to what Alport, Pollock, Hill, and Sutter were all telling me about contact. Do any of you know any LGBT individuals? Like, like, at all? It was a weird question. They didn't want to answer. And one of the pastors told me that he had employed people like that in the past and he had always tried to share the gospel with them to let them know they weren't on the right path. But I wanted to know what the head pastor would say. The man who had yelled at me. The man who had just given this long lecture about the evils of same-sex marriage. I am acquainted with some from the community. Um, But to say that I know them in the sense of I have lunch with these guys. I don't, I don't know any, anyone from that community uh, on that level right now. When I talked to Rob Hill about this, he said, don't, don't confuse this as the fault of religion. The Southern closet precedes it. This is cultural and the churches support this cultural norm, but they're not necessarily the source of it. Now, if you try to attack religion, if you try to, to blunt force, push people away, from their faith, you will not change minds. But you can attack that norm because the norm is what is perpetuating 
people avoiding contact on both sides. And Rob Hill is determined to change that. Ignorance is not a bad word always. You know, ignorance just means you don't know. And you don't know who's around you. You don't. And, and funny you say that because we had, we did a survey, and that same survey we did in October, we asked Mississippians, um, "Do you know anybody who's LGBT?" And and only fifty percent said that they know anybody who is gay or lesbian. And and, and you know, and we're not talking about just a family member. We're talking about the person who makes your coffee, you know, at the McDonald's or you know, whatever. Um, do you know anybody who's gay or lesbian? Only 50%. Now, the national average, if you ask that question, is 90% respond that they know somebody who's gay or lesbian. So, I don't know. There's something about that. I don't think that was true. I think some people just start telling the truth, obviously. Um, they want to remain blissfully ignorant. But there's something that we really find and what we hear from people is, and I, I hear it all the time. In fact, yesterday morning I was talking to a legislator um, who was talking about, well, I know so-and-so. Well, our community has a lot of gay people. They just don't talk about mm-hmm. it. And, and we are very, we're, we're very open, very uh, welcoming is what he meant to say, what he said. He said, but we just don't talk about it openly. And so that's what we hear all around, and I hear all around the, the state, you know, we just don't talk about it. And when I started telling my own story, I mean, I was a pastor for 12 years and lived a, you know, fairly, you know, closeted life to, to an extent. I had a, you know, I, a lot of people knew, but we didn't talk about it, you know. Yeah. Uh, but when I started telling my story, you know, it was, it, it was very uncomfortable for family members of mine because we just don't talk about these kind of things. Today, Rob is head of the Human Rights Campaign in Mississippi, but he used to have a congregation. He used to deliver sermons every Sunday, just like Kevin Shearer and the other pastors I met at the anti-same-sex marriage conference. I asked him, why wasn't he still preaching, and how had the Southern Closet affected him and his church? And why would a gay man from Mississippi even want to become a preacher? felt a real strong call to to ministry. I really, I, I, I can identify a day or a, an instant where I really felt like I was being called to serve God in, in full-time ministry. And so once, that was my freshman year of college. What was the call? Well, it was, it was a, it, there was no, there was no, uh, no, ver, no verbal Called. I didn't have I didn't have a theophany as they say when when you hear God's voice. I had a I don't know what you call a, a feeling, and I knew in that instant that I was being called to ministry. Um, and and I went home and I, I was so sure about it that it scared me, and and I didn't tell my family for weeks that I was going to uh, in, I intended to go into ministry or intended to you know start on that path towards becoming an ordained United Methodist minister. I also knew I was gay. You know, I, I, you know, I still was trying to figure that out. You know, I thought that maybe it was still a phase that, you know, maybe I just hadn't uh, found the right or met the right woman, you know, that I had this attraction to, to the same sex. Mm-hmm. 
at the same time, but I just thought, well, maybe I hadn't met the right woman and went through college and, you know, still kind of suppressed all of that, never talked to anybody about it, nobody, you know, and ended up um, going to Duke Divinity School. And it was it was only into my second, no, I guess into my first year that I told, told the first person about it. Rob said it soon became clear that this was not a phase. He was not going to meet the right woman. And his faith was strong. He became a chaplain at a hospital in New York City. He met a man and he started a very serious relationship. And he said it was at that point he realized he was at a crossroads. Two roads diverged, you know, to quote Robert Frost. And, and I really loved this guy. But I also felt so strongly pulled to the to the church, to my family, so obligated that I chose to go back into the, to the, go finish my year, last year at Duke. And then the next summer, I was in Utica, Mississippi, in, in, the, in the middle, you know, of some people would say nowhere. It was a wonderful place. Rob would spend the next 12 years in Mississippi, three in Utica and another nine in Jackson, both far away from New York City and the crossroads where he had made his decision. But, you know, all the while, coming to terms more and more with my, with being who I was, becoming more and more authentically who I was, but also being a very, I mean, strangely dealing with those kind of tough things, uh, but, but, but having a very fruitful and effective ministry because I really loved it. I loved to preach. I loved to, to minister to people. I loved to, to baptize a baby. I loved to, you know, serve communion to people. And there's something that was really fulfilling about that. But at the same time, I was, I had, I was starting into a relationship, a, a, a growing relationship. And now we've been together for seven years. And, but, but there came a point where while I loved the ministry, I, and, and, and as I was growingly, I was becoming, growing more, uh, more authentic about who I was, and am as a person who God, I believe God has created me to be, I could no longer do both. It felt to me duplicitous. And so I had to choose another path. When Rob made this choice, he knew that that would be the end of his ministry, at least in the Methodist church, because the Methodist church has strict rules against this sort of thing. I surrendered my credentials ahead of starting this job. That was hard. Oh, it was tremendously hard. I had to go and uh, take my ordination certificate off the wall, uh, and I had to, you know, rip it open from the frame that I'd paid a lot of money to, to, to have it framed in, and and present it to my district superintendent, who then handed it on to the bishop's office, because I didn't want to have to go through all of the clergy trial and stuff like that that would uh, distract from the work that I needed to do. Of course, most people knew. And it was just something that was kept in that southern closet. But when he came out, Rob said it was handled very swiftly, very quietly. And when he finally did receive word from the bishop who was handling all of this, it was it wasn't a very satisfying end. I got a call from him, um, and he just said, "I want to acknowledge that I got your your credentials, and we'll do everything we'll to to make sure that you get what's yours." It was like. You know, I wanted to say thank you for not making making me have to take you to a trial and avoiding, you know, being able to avoid all of this, uh, you know, all of the 
media and uh, the unwanted attention that they would get for taking an effective pastor to trial for being openly gay. But he didn't, you know, and I'm wounded by that. I felt discarded by the church at that point. Although I made the decision to, to walk away. But I, I, I kind of wish that somebody would have said, I, and I did have a lot of people who sent me text messages, Facebook messages, emails, saying, oh, saying, you know, and one person just whispered to me somewhere. And that's what a lot of that amounted to, was just whispers. I wanted them to say, you know, stand up and say, this is in, in, un, unjust that an effective pastor is having to leave his orders behind in order to be authentically who, who, who God has created him to be. And that is not right. And, you know, and I, again, I, about, it was because of fear of, of, the, of, of saying what they believe to be true out loud. Rob told me that although he had to leave the Methodist church, he doesn't feel as though he had to leave the ministry. In fact, he's ministering to more people than ever before. And it's his experience as a minister and his training at Duke that have made him a powerful mind changer in the country's most religious state. His strategy at the HRC is not to tell people to turn their backs on their faith or to stop attending church, but to ask themselves if they are absolutely sure they are interpreting the Bible correctly. He explained to me that there are six passages in Scripture that he and the other activists call the clobber passages because they're used as cudgels to, as he put it, clobber the gaze. And part of his message is about changing the way people read those passages. Where, where, I, where I come down on this is I take the Gospels very seriously. I'm a, I love Jesus. You know, and I think, honestly, even if I didn't believe in God, I would fall in love with Jesus you know, because of the way his, his teachings. And Jesus never says anything about um, homosexuality. We continued this conversation for a while just as I had with the members of 38th Avenue Baptist Church. And I asked Rob if maybe what's going on here is that this is about how he interprets it versus how they interpret it. And maybe the Bible just can seem so ambiguous, so lost in translation that it can just be used to say whatever you want it to say. It can say whatever you want it to say. I mean, throughout history, it's been used that way to to, uh, argue that, you know, you know, to, to justify slavery, to say that women shouldn't be able to vote, that, uh, again, African Americans shouldn't be able to vote. And now yeah. we continue to see, you know, it, it used to say that, you know, gay and lesbian people, bisexual, transgender people shouldn't have the same rights. And this is how Rob came up with the All God's Children campaign that's airing across the states, with commercials his team put together to vicariously put the most religious people in contact with the people affected by the laws he hopes to change. And I know that people who take the Bible literally, they have that understanding about, you know, they're going to be reluctant to change about that. So what I say is, well, you know, okay, so we're not going to be able to agree to marriage. Um, Can we agree that all people need to be treated equally? You know, doesn't your faith teach you that? That nobody should be able to fear should have to fear losing their job because they're gay. And people say, no, they got to provide for themselves. They got to pay taxes, you know. 
so yeah, so we let's find the places that we can agree to while we necessarily can't uh, we can't reconcile our feelings around the Bible. But I say also I said this to my mother one time. She said, "Well, what do you think about that? What do you how do you how do you reconcile your you know behavior <laughs> with the Bible?" And I you know and I said, well, "I just don't read the Bible the way you do." And, you know, I just read it with different eyes. When you read it as somebody who's gay, you, you see it, you see it differently. I asked Rob if he thought, without the influence of the Supreme Court, would Mississippi have been the last state to change its laws concerning gay marriage? And he said, maybe. But he had absolute confidence that he and others in the state were well on their way to changing people's minds on the matter. And that it wouldn't take nearly as long as people around the country might assume. And then I asked him, surely there must be some people he could never reach. People who, no matter what, would never change their minds. And in response, he shared with me this story from the Bible. The Syrophoenician woman, or in one, uh, or another gospel, she's called the Samaritan uh, woman. And, and she comes to Jesus and she says, you know, will you heal my child? And he says, you know, that uh, basically said, he he calls her a dog when he says that, you know, uh, the master does not give the food to the dogs from the table, but only to the children. And I have come here for the children of Israel. And she argues with him. And, you know, she is not a child of Israel. She is not, you know, she's not Jewish. And she says, but, but, but Lord, teacher, don't even the dogs under the table get the crumbs? And it's this wonderful experience or this, this realization that Jesus has. A lot of people, they try to say, well, he's, he's just, you know, they argue that in a way saying that he's trying to um, test her faith. But no, he realizes, he says, he says, great is your faith. Um, and he says, your daughter has been made well. Or your child has been made well. I hadn't been it, I hadn't been studying the Bible a whole lot lately because I've been so busy with this and I have not been preparing no, for sermons. I think, I think it's okay. <laughs> but it's this great instance where where Jesus changes his mind and his and changes the direction of his ministry, and he this one who was on the outside it becomes one on the inside because of her faith, and and people ignore that that even Jesus even Jesus changes his mind. He has this wonderful experience where his heart and mind are changed. And we're talking about the Lord of the universe. <laughs> you know, the incarnate Son of God uh, realizes, I was wrong, and you are of value. Now, 
our final story in this episode is closure. When I spoke with Betsy Pollack, she said the contact hypothesis was just that, a hypothesis. It was incomplete. And that's mainly because it's very difficult to study this kind of sweeping mind change in the lab. And once you begin looking backwards into history and at polls, speculation can blur whatever connections you might be able to make between change and the conditions of contact first laid out by Gordon Allport in the 1950s. But all that changed this year. Not only was the contact hypothesis put to the test, it was advanced in a big way. And that's because a man named Dave Fleischer became obsessed with solving a mystery. Hey, David. Hey, how are you? Well, I'm doing great. How are you? Oh, so great. Uh, Should I call you Dave or David? Uh, You can call me either, but Dave usually is what people call me. Okay, great. Uh, And thank you so much for taking some time out to do this. Uh, It's a really strange project, I know. Uh, (laughs) It's my life, David. (laughs) So uh, it doesn't feel strange at all. And... uh, yeah, the only uh, strange part is that you're going around Mississippi trying to actually understand uh, what this means. I can't wait to hear what your experience has been. Dave Fleischer is a professional mind changer. As a political canvasser and activist, he has spent more than 40 years working to understand how voters think. Today, he directs the Leadership Lab, a small part of the Los Angeles LGBT Center. The LGBT Center is the largest such organization on the entire planet with an annual budget of more than $83 million a year. They have a clinic, they have a pharmacy, and 70% of the people who come there come for health care. Fleischer told me the role of the leadership lab inside that center is to figure out practical ways to reduce prejudice, to actually change people's minds, and then share what they learn with other organizations across the country. Our uh, mission is the long game. In 2008, Dave Fleischer, like many LGBT activists in California, was working around the clock to fight Proposition 8, a ballot measure that would make same-sex marriage illegal. There had been a tremendous amount of progress in favor of legal, state-recognized same-sex unions in California in the years leading up to Prop 8, arguably more than in any other state. Thousands of LGBT couples in California had already been married during the back and forth in the legislature leading up to the vote. But in 2008, polls showed that voters there were still evenly split. It seemed possible, but unlikely, that the vote might go through, that Prop 8 might become law. And of course, the whole country was watching. 2008 had been a very contentious time for LGBT rights in all of America. There were rumors of a constitutional ban, and there were ballot measures in several states that were much more likely to pass. So, in San Francisco and Los Angeles and across California, among millions of people, the debate was intense and tensions were high leading up to November. In addition, money was flowing in from other states to support both sides. In the end, citizens went to the ballot box and 52% of those who voted, voted to make same-sex marriage illegal. And the LGBT community had expected to prevail. All the polling showed that our side would prevail. The experience of LGBT people on a day-to-day basis in California uh, is often very positive. So it was a real shock when we lost. 
And uh, shock almost doesn't do justice to it. People were uh, so furious and humiliated and really didn't know what to do. There were protests, there were demonstrations, and work began immediately to undo Prop 8. But Fleischer wanted to know why. How could this have happened? People really weren't sure how to go forward. And so the best idea I had for folks was, why don't we recruit a team of people and go to talk to the voters who voted against us and find out why they did that? Fleischer put together listening brigades, groups of people who simply wanted to hear what voters thought. And this never happens. Canvassers typically come around hoping to get your vote or to get you to hear all about their candidate's platform. But Fleischer's team, which would soon grow into hundreds of listeners and thousands of helpers, just listened. No arguments, just earnest listening with the intent of truly understanding how people felt. And over the next several years, we had more than 12,000 conversations, David, door to door in parts of L.A. County where we were crushed by two to one or more. And we talked with every voter, but we spent most of our time talking with the voters who, you know, disagreed with us or who were conflicted. Now, Fleischer makes this sound easy, but it was a huge undertaking. His canvassers started recording the conversations, at first the audio and then later the video, and they would return to headquarters to debrief every excursion, and they would watch the conversations that other groups would bring back. And the more Fleischer's team talked with people, the more they learned about how to talk with people. And they started sharing their own experiences and making real connections. I, I remember a conversation where, knock on the door, explain why I'm there, and the guy jumps out onto the porch. He's so eager to tell me how against gay marriage he is. And I, I'm, I'm going to be 60 next month. But this guy's like 10 years older than me. And, uh, but he's very excited that I've <laughs> come around to hear him on this. So, you know, he tells me his opinion about how terrible it is. And, and so I, I ask him, you know, do you know somebody gay? And he says, absolutely. I said, oh, who? And he says, my wife got a voucher at work to go to Disneyland. And we went. And it was gay day. And there were all these gays there. Including this guy we saw wearing a big feather boa. And I said, did you talk with him? He said, no, yeah, of course not. I said, oh, okay. I said, well, uh, I forgot my boa today. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he laughed. He really did laugh. And then we had this conversation. I mean, the truth was, right, he thought of himself as somebody who knew gay people. But the truth is, he had never met a gay person. Not really, not in any meaningful sense. At a certain point, Fleischer and his team began to notice that during those conversations, after making contact with people who had 
never really been in contact with a member of the LGBT community, those people seemed changed. And so they began working on a script designed to encourage both parties to open up, to share both sides' experiences with marriage, and then reveal to the strangers that they were talking with someone who had been directly affected by Prop 8. And, amazingly, it started to work. Over time, we had gotten to a point where we were pretty sure we were having an impact. Years into this project, 12,000 conversations later, they could approach a person who was opposed to same-sex marriage, talk to them for about 20 minutes, and within that time, change that person's mind on the issue completely, just by sharing. It was astonishing, especially since Fleischer was familiar with the research into this kind of canvassing, which basically says it, along with almost every other kind of political ad and robocall and other swaying tactic, does not work. This is a very pessimistic literature. It only makes people who are already on your side more likely to vote. This, this was something new and amazing, and Fleischer, more than anyone, realized it. So this is a, bi- so this is a big deal is what I'm telling you. (laughs) 40 years of experience, familiar with the literature and how pessimistic it was, Fleischer was skeptical of his own methods. And so he decided to reach out to a political scientist who studies this sort of thing and see if he might be interested in studying what Fleischer... It deeply saddens me that I have to do this. But I am interrupting the show. I'm abruptly interrupting the show right here to let you know that I have removed the rest of this segment. What you originally heard at this point was how scientists went out and studied Fleischer, which they did, and they recorded the same kinds of things that he recorded, but they also tracked the mind change using surveys. And it now appears that the researcher who was responsible for those surveys didn't actually do the work. And allegedly, he also falsified the data by replacing the missing information with information from another study. Now, when the co-author of that study learned about all of this, he contacted the journal where the research was published and he retracted it. And now that research has been deleted from the scientific record. And if you'd like to learn more details about all of that, I have an article up at youarenotsosmart.com, but it's very complicated. And so here I'm just saying... I'm re-uploading the file to replace the old one. I'm changing this episode to reflect the retraction. And you'll hear one more thing from Fleischer after I stop talking, and then the show will end. I'm very sorry. Um, Believe me, it kills me to have to do this. I loved creating the show, and I put several months into the research, into the work behind it and everything. And I just hate that this has to happen. But if you would like to hear the original version, you can still download it from the website. But do know that... the The information at this point of the show is incorrect. This version, which is what goes out to all the services, the podcasting services, and is up on SoundCloud, it's going to be corrected with this new information. So I'm very sorry. It's a very strange situation. I don't like it. And now, a final thought from Fleischer. Well, David, when was the last time you changed your mind about anything important? It, it doesn't, it seems like it doesn't happen often enough, does it? <laughs> well, that's right. And it, we don't change our mind all the time. But if you think about whenever you might have, I think what you're going to realize is it's not that somebody changed your mind. 
And, and when we're at the door, I don't feel like I am changing the voter's mind. What I feel like really is that they are changing their mind because they are actually taking a moment to, uh, I'll just call it, think. <laughs> but it's not really... Fleischer explained not, that people often believe that they know where their opinions come from and that they come from introspection and reflection and rational contemplation. But in reality, once people compare their lives, their lived experiences to their opinions, the two usually don't perfectly balance out. In every one of those 12,000 conversations, the person on the other side of the door got a chance to see that, to think, and to see that their experiences simply didn't match their expectations. It, it, it's, it's not as simple as the simplest construction of contact theory where, where, you know, simply knowing somebody gay is enough. But it's like that older guy I was talking with on his front porch. Now that he knew somebody who was gay, me, and we were talking about it, and he could ask me questions about me, and I wanted to answer, honestly, um, he could see with his own eyes that whatever impression he had of gay people was, uh, you know, really not at its core uh, very accurate. And particularly, he could see that, you know, he and I could have a good time talking, even if we didn't agree. And I didn't need him to agree, right? I didn't tell him, I didn't wag my finger at him and say, so now you've got to change your mind. But over the course of the conversation, he did begin to change his mind. And uh, I think that's what changing your mind looks like, is what I'm saying. Some final thoughts after this break. You Are Not So Smart is supported by Wealthfront, the automated investment service that makes it easy to invest your money the right way. It automatically rebalances your portfolio and reinvests your dividends all commission-free. Wealthfront manages more than $2 billion and has saved millions on taxes for its clients. Visit Wealthfront.com slash so smart to get your first $10,000 managed for free. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. This has been a really interesting adventure. I've been reporting this for about three months now, and there will be three podcasts altogether based on that reporting. This one, 
a smaller one, a shorter one that is going to be just for Patreon supporters that will appear in the Patreon feed. And then another full episode about how it came to be that Mississippi changed its mind so rapidly and got to the point that it's at today. How all the activist groups formed, how they found each other, and, and why they couldn't find each other before, which all has to do with a certain psychological phenomenon that you will learn all about in the next episode. Head to boingboing.net for more great podcasts like this one. And head to youarenotsosmart.com, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes to listen to all the previous episodes of the podcast. And thanks to Patreon, we also have transcripts. You can also find those at the website. If you send me a cookie recipe, and you got to send that to david at youarenotsosmart.com, and then I bake it, and then I eat it on the air, you will get a signed copy of one of my books, You Are Not So Smart, or You Are Now Less Dumb. You can follow You Are Not So Smart on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+. On Twitter, it's at NotSmartBlog, and I am at David McCraney. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. Other music was provided by Banjo-Pocalypse, Mogwai, Stereobot, and Drew Garraway.